Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, my lovely Betwixters. This is Kate Lister, and I am here with quite a serious warning about today's episode. Today, we are looking at the crime of indecent exposure, or flashing to use the vernacular, and the history of how this crime was policed. So inevitably, we are going to be talking about sexual assault, sexual harassment, and we do have a number of personal testimonies of people who have been the victims of this crime. This is not an easy listen, but it's an important listen. But it's also one that you just might not want to listen to today, and that's absolutely fine. Today's episode came out of an experience that one of my producers, Sophie, had. So I was walking home by myself and I was on a quiet street. It was just me for a while and then I was aware of just one man behind me and everything was just like, okay, I'll speed up and get to the end of the road. And when I did get to the end of the road, the man kind of went, hey. And he just had his willy out. I was mainly confused about what he wanted. Like, why was he doing that? It's estimated that around one in 10 women have experienced indecent exposure since they turned 16. Police have described the rise in cases of flashing as an epidemic. But not all cases are reported to the police. And of the incidences that are reported, which is over 10,000 a year, only around 5% actually make it to court. And if we're talking about 10% of the female population, it's almost certain that if this crime didn't happen to you, then someone you know and love has experienced it. So we asked a few of our nearest and dearest if they have ever been flashed at or experienced indecent exposure. And one thing that really surprised all of us is how common this is and that the people that we love have certainly experienced it and that we'd never heard these stories before. It's just not something that we talk about. This is the section where we are going to play first-hand accounts of experiencing this particular sex crime. This could be a tough listen. So when I was about, I must have been about 11, a repairman came around to fix the washing machine and, yeah, basically I walked in, showed him where the washing machine was. He walked in behind me, so he was kind of blocking the doorway for me to be able to get out. And he stood there with his overalls on and he just put his hand on his fly and I remember thinking that's a bit inappropriate. And there's me kind of like looking at him, wanting him to look at the washing machine, but instead he was looking at me and then he undid his fly and just like took his penis out. 
um, which made me instinctually freak out massively. Even as a child, I just somehow knew that this was really bad. When I was at college, which was quite a long time ago now, there were a group of girls sat in one of the lounges of the Halls of Residence when this guy decided that he would uh, flash them, which was quite distressing. And in those days, when you reported things to the police, they came and spoke to us. And honest to God, the police asked the girls for a description of this guy and not one of them could say what his face looked like. There was a flasher when I was in primary school. I think I was only about eight or nine and he was at the school gates and our teachers. I don't remember seeing anything, but I just remember our teachers gathering us all together and like pushing us all back indoors. So it happened probably when I was in my mid-twenties. I was running on the outskirts of Leeds in a sort of semi-rural area and I was sort of aware in my peripheral vision of this vehicle and this person stood next to it to my left and I heard this whistle which made me turn around and he exposed himself to me and he was still in fairly sort of close proximity at that point so it took me a couple of seconds to actually realise what was going on and then I felt really scared and then I went home and sort of phoned the police about it but even when I was phoning the police I was thinking do people phone the police about this kind of thing? I was about 15 and I was walking from the tube station to my dad's and I started hearing this like funny heavy breathing behind me and I looked around and there was a young man having a wank with his penis out following me along the road. I got flashed when I was about must have been about 10, maybe 11. I was getting the bus home from school and I'd missed my stop. So I had to get off the bus like one or two stops late and I was walking back down and um, like off the main road there was these like ginnels, like busy main road, like lots of cars and traffic. And at one of these ginnels was just a guy stood there as I walked past, like face covered with his baseball cap and had a penis out and was kind of jiggling it around. Hello and welcome back to Betwixt the Sheets, the history of sex scandal in society, with me, Kate Lister. Today we are looking into the history of policing indecent exposure with Professor Kim Stevenson. But first we're going to speak to Professor of Psychology, Dr Elizabeth Jeglick, to ask the question, why do people flash? My name is Dr. Elizabeth Jeglick, and I am a professor of psychology at the John Jay College of Criminal Justice in New York. I study sexual violence prevention. Some of our most recent research suggests that about 4% of individuals have exhibitionistic interests, meaning that they are aroused by exposing themselves to or the thought of exposing themselves to unsuspecting and non-consenting individuals, and about 1% to 2% of the general population will go on to act on those. There are gender differences with men being more likely to engage in exhibitionistic behaviors than women. But again, we don't really know a lot about women who engage in this type of behavior only because women are rarely reported. It's thought to be more acceptable in some of the laws. If women expose their breasts, it's not illegal in some places. And women are generally seem to be less threatening than men. So the reason that people flash is varied. Some people do it, you know, for a laugh. Some people do it to get attention. 
We now know that young people are using it as a form of courtship. And so they are, you know, using technology such as smartphones and computers to share images of one another. And all that is is kind of normative in what we consider to be okay. But on the other end of that spectrum is what we have called exhibitionistic disorder. And that's when people do this as their primary outlet for sexual pleasure. And it's done with non-consenting individuals, and it can cause distress to individuals who experience it. Kind of historically looking at it, this is a behavior that's been around kind of since before BC, and it was really not until the late 1800s that it was identified as a psychological disorder or a deviant sexual act. And so we kind of knew that this wasn't potentially a good thing, but it wasn't until the 1980s that it became a clinical diagnosis as exhibitionism disorder or ex exhibitionistic disorder. And that is now considered one of the eight paraphilias in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. And so what paraphilias are, are there unusual attractions or unusual behaviors that cause distress to other people and are usually done with non-consenting individuals? And so exhibitionism is defined as the repetitive act of exposing one's genitals to unsuspecting strangers for the purposes of achieving sexual excitement. And generally, it is thought that no further sexual activity is wanted with the individual. And sometimes individuals might also masturbate. We know that those who have exhibitionistic disorder tend to have this as their primary sexual outlet. It can be a positive experience in the sense that they get sexually aroused, they masturbate, and that's what they do. And then some people use it as a self-soothing behavior. So they're feeling down and then they'll go out and seek someone to expose themselves to and then they will masturbate to their reaction. We know very little in general about exhibitionistic disorder because very few people are actually caught for it. And then the people we have studied are the ones that have done it numerous times. People have also asked individuals who've experienced it so that they've been flashed themselves about the prevalence of exhibitionistic disorder. And it's estimated that anywhere between one third and half of all women have been flashed. And it was initially thought to be a nuisance behavior. And so it wasn't taken so seriously by authorities. But we're now kind of recognizing that it does have long-term effects and people do feel unsafe. And there is some evidence now to suggest that there is a small portion of individuals who engage in these exhibitionistic acts who do go on to make contact sexual offenses. So it is considered to be a sex crime, but a non-contact sex crime. Thank you so much, Dr. Elizabeth, for taking the time to explain some of the psychology behind this crime. Now, we're going to speak to Professor Kim Stevenson about how indecent exposure and other sexual offences have been policed in the UK. Let's do it. So, hello and welcome to Betwixt the Sheets, Professor Kim Stevenson. How are you? Yeah, we're good this morning. Thank you, Kate. Although the forecast's uh, looking pretty horrendous later. It is very grey and drizzly oop north as well. It's not panning out to be a great day, which is why I'm even happier to be here talking to you about this fascinating subject, the history of indecent exposure. How did you get into this research? (laughs) That's a good question. So for the last 20 years, I've been researching the history of sex crimes, so rape, child abuse, and as part of that, indecency and other sort of what they would call more minor offences. I don't like that term because they're not minor for anybody that's been subjected to them. But yeah, that's kind of how it all came about. 
It's such an interesting history. And I suppose what I'll start with is what counts as public indecency? Well, there's two perspectives to that because there's the concept of public indecency in terms of what the public, you and I, would think is indecent. So the moral majority, if you like, or the great and good kind of deciding what isn't acceptable behaviour. And then there's the indecency from a legal perspective, which is criminalised, which law defines and determines is something, you know, that is behaviour which should be punished if you're found breaking the law on that particular provision. Because it's kind of, when you sort of stop and think about it, I mean, the laws are important, obviously, and we'll get to that, but it's kind of bonkers that we have a situation where things that you do just at home are completely fine, but then when you change the location, then it's indecent. Like the idea that, that your body is just indecent in its natural state. And actually, law can intervene in the home in odd occasion as well. And I suppose the big debate about that all happened in 1957. The Wolfenden Report, which is when the discussions were going on about sort of legalisation of homosexuality and kind of pulling on John Stuart Mill's series in the 19th century about when law should step in and both Mill and the Wolfenden Report concluded that there is an area of private morality where it's not for the law or the state to criminalise behaviour. So, yes, you should be able to do what you want in the privacy of your own home. But, yeah, historically, that's not always been the case. No. And if you do these things outside of the home, then the law will get involved. Absolutely. I remember there was a couple that got caught having sex in a, was it Domino's pizza in 2017? It's not funny. I don't know why I'm laughing, but... <laughs> It kind of makes you smile because of the location, I suppose. That's it, isn't it? But yes, having sex in the Domino's pizza, while the staff were there looking on and other people queuing, (laughs) is that appropriate behaviour? You know, where are the parameters between what is acceptable in public and what isn't? And of course, that's not the only example. I've got a few more I can give you as we go through. And also that sort of situation presents problems for the law because... It's not per se an offence to have sex in the Domino's pizza. You know, it's not actually written in any kind of statutes anywhere. So you have to find some kind of provision that would cover that. And then that becomes questionable because you're then using perhaps legal provisions that weren't intended or designed for that particular situation. God, that's interesting. So there isn't a law that says you can't have sex in a Domino's pizza or just in a restaurant. But we can all kind of look at that and go, that's not on. You shouldn't be doing that. But what law do you use to say we need to punish this behaviour? That's fascinating. Because it's consensual. So because it's consensual and they're both adults, then most of the provisions under sexual offence law wouldn't apply because obviously they're designed to protect vulnerable people and situations where there is no consent or children or other vulnerable individuals don't have the capacity to consent because they don't know what it is or understand what it is they're consenting to. So I suppose the people being forced to watch that weren't consenting. True. (laughs) And so that's where law should step in and protect their interests and it's that justification of causing public harm to the wider public. I don't know if it would have been any better if it was anywhere else though. Even if you'd upscaled it to like the Ivy or the Ritz, it would still be, no, you really shouldn't do that. (laughs) 
no, and they both ended up getting, I think it was a 23 hours community service. You just kind of want to sit down and just go like, was it just so, I suppose, when the passion takes you, I suppose. But it raises interesting points about who gets to decide what's indecent, because that's sort of at the crux of all the ethical implications around this is who is saying what's decent and what's indecent. Absolutely. And historically, of course, it was the church. So if you go way, way back, it's the church, Church of England, that's setting standards and guidelines about what is acceptable moral behaviour. And they have ecclesiastical courts and other ways, of course, of ensuring that you follow those guidelines, those moral guidelines. And at one stage, they even dealt with cases of incest and um, sexual assaults. And if you go back to medieval times, you perhaps had to go and stand with a board in public or (laughs) repenting what you had done. And then gradually the 19th century, things start to change as there's a more secular move towards controlling, regulating immoral conduct behaviour in its widest context and definition. So at the beginning of the 19th century, you start to see the great and the good, the bourgeoisie, sort of right-minded volunteers wanting to ensure that the masses behave in accordance to their expectations. Right. And so gradually lots of voluntary groups develop on a whole range of subjects. So indecency becomes a huge catch-all as a kind of concept which covers not just things to do with sexual issues but betting gambling indecent advertising literature so it all comes under this big heading as the century develops and the church at the beginning are quite reluctant because they're losing their power to let kind of the state and the broader public take on that control. But once laws are passed that punish those behaviours, then the church will accept the legitimacy of it because then it's the state that's taking control. So, yeah, quite an interesting dynamic going on. The church would have had no truck whatsoever with people having sex in ye old pizza hut, would they? That's no, no <laughs> that no, wouldn't no. have been 24 hours of communication. <laughs> no, and of course... Those kind of Christian perspectives have informed law a lot. I mean, today isn't a subject to talk about rape, for example, but the concept of rape is very much based on the Anglican expectation that sex is only for procreation and therefore sex can only be per vagina. So that's why, again, you never had any kind of recognition until 20th century of, you know, sex per anum or oral sex or anything else being sort of criminalised because it was a very, very narrow interpretation of what sex was. So how would those crimes have been punished before those laws were recognised or would they not have been? Yeah, well, rape's always been a crime that's been punished, but initially it was called violentis concubis. It meant that sort of medieval times, Elizabethan times, you had to prove that a woman had been abducted and then that a man had violated her because she was her husband's property. And so it was the abduction and the violation of his property that were more important than the sexual violation of her. And it was an amendable crime, which meant that the offender could then be liable to pay compensation to the husband or her father for the damage to his daughter, his wife, because she was now spoiled goods. Oh, my God. I think I remember reading somewhere once that it was a crime sort of subject to gradation in seriousness, depending on who the victim was. So if it was a young, virginal, high-class woman, that was much more serious than a poor widow, for example. 
Absolutely. And stereotypical sort of expectations of how women should behave. And that came through very strongly in the Victorian period that you needed to be respectable. So if you went out, you had to wear your hat, your gloves. You had to have your companion with you, your protector with you. You would never go out on your own at night. And so, yeah, this kind of gradation. So prostitutes, for example, could not be rate of course they can but mm. it wasn't accepted because that was their profession and so it was assumed that they would always consent male rape wasn't recognized until 1994 it was thought that elderly women would be less affected by rape no <gasps> because you've lived your life god that's fucked up but these are all myths but the problem with myths is they infect the law and they infect jury beliefs mm. and they're used by defence barristers when representing a person accused to try and yeah, convince the jury that this woman is not a reliable witness. This woman, you know, isn't the genuine victim. You think about how few cases of sexual assault and, and rape actually make it to court today. And then you think about what people were up against in the past. It's amazing that anybody brought any cases forward at all ever when you've got to go through something like that, stand in a courtroom full of men and they're all going to explain that it can't have bothered you that much because you're not 22 anymore. That's just, I can't get my head around it. And it's not just the courtroom. So what you've got to remember is that women have had no voice in the law in terms of making the law or contributing to the legislation. So the first time that women had any say in the laws that really affect them, and I'm not decrying male victims, I mean, that's important as well, but we know that 90% of sexual offences generally are against women or children. And it was David Blunkett, funnily enough, who was the first person that actually encouraged and deliberately went out to get women involved in drafting the Sexual Offences Act 2003. So before that, all the law had only ever been written by men because there were no women in Parliament until the 20th century. So the legislation is drafted by men. As you say, if you're the victim, who are you going to tell? All the police were, of course, men, because there were no police women really until the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century. You would have had to have gone to a court where all the judiciary would be men, all the lawyers would be men. And it wouldn't just be one barrister. You know, they would have their assistants with them. And so there's pictures of 19th century courtroom with, I don't know, at the Old Bailey, you know, you could have 50 men in that courtroom and you're yeah, the only female. All the jurors are men because women cannot be a juror until, again, the 20th century because of the rules of owning property. So, yeah, a very hostile, masculine environment. So you'd have to be one very brave lady to go with that. Wow. But you're in a rock and a hard place because obviously <laughs> if you'd been raped in that period, then you would lose your respectability just by the fact that you had been raped. So you've then got to bring a case to prove that it was rape and that it wasn't consensual, you know, to maintain your respectability. Otherwise, you're never going to be able to get married. You're going to be kind of shunned. Having said all of that, there are examples of actually, you know, quite significant convictions. So if you put yourself through all that and provided you are respectable and you'd need witnesses, male witnesses, of course, to take you know that you're a good girl and you follow all the tropes because the defendant will also have his witnesses to come and try and convince the court that actually he didn't do it because he was respectable and it was you know 
the blame was on her. Oh, and of course, I forgot to mention as well that if it was rape, you had to fight back. So the court would expect to see the bruises. They'd expect to have witnesses hear you scream. You had to do everything you could to protect your modesty. Oh, my God. If you did all that, then the chances of conviction would be good. But, yeah, a big ask. And you can't possibly imagine what it must have been like. No, it be mind-boggling it really is so what was happening around this time kind of in this situation where it's very male it's just a very patriarchal system because that's what it was it seems to be quite hostile to women what was happening in the 19th century to change the laws around indecent exposure at what point did someone go we need laws about this so nobody really said we need laws (laughs) sometimes what happens with crime and cases is somebody will do something somewhere in the country and other people go oh that's not right and you see it particularly with sexual offences if you think of child abuse cases we're always playing catch up because ordinary people cannot conceive what others can do to children so you pass laws within the kind of knowledge sphere that you've got and you can accept not accept that's probably the wrong word but you acknowledge what might happen to children and then somebody will come along and they'll do something and you could never have conceived of that because we can't think that way does that make sense taking it back to sort of indecent exposure it was quite an innocuous incident really in 1809 so nice hot summer's day Brighton Beach and a man called Crundon decided he was going to go for a swim so he stripped off on the beach went swimming and there were complaints from residents so for a time in this area soldiers had regularly gone swimming but then they built a row of houses and the people moving into the houses could then see if anyone went swimming on the beach and right. going to the local magistrate. So then it's local communities thinking, well, what do we do? Is that acceptable? And they decide, no, that's not right. You know, families shouldn't be able to see men bathing naked and getting undressed. And so they try and come up with some sort of offence that he could be guilty of. So there's no clear offence, but there is this sort of historic We call them common law offences. So these are crimes that in the past have been recognised by the judiciary. They've not been passed by Parliament, so they're not in legislation. They're not in an act of Parliament. They're not written down. But because the judges have confirmed convictions on occasion, it becomes part of the law. And the law originally was all common law. It was only sort of in the modern era, 18th century onwards, that you start to get, you know, legislation coming through. So they come up with, what can we charge him with? Well, we're charging with outraging public decency because that's what he's done. And it goes to court and the court actually asks itself, is it an offence for someone, you know, if they do what he did, this conduct, should it be unlawful? And they ask themselves that question and decide, yes, it is, and convict him. But they say, because it's a first situation that this has happened, we shan't punish you, but we are sending a message out that this kind of conduct is not acceptable. And so hence we have a precedent, which other courts will follow. And then it's how broadly that precedent can be interpreted. And so we get to the situation right at the beginning that you mentioned about the uh, the pizza (laughs) shop. And so that provision from 1809 is sort of updated and used in 2017, along with lots of other situations en route, which in some cases have nothing to do with 
any kind of sexual connotation per se. So can you remember in 1990, the galleries case? So there was a, a famous gallery in London and one of the art installations in the front window was a female dummy's head, but the earrings were freeze-dried foetuses, aborted foetuses. Oh, God, now I don't remember that one. That would cause a stir, wouldn't it? And, of course, there was no crime written down in any statute book that would cover that kind of situation. No. So, again, it's what do the authorities do? Hmm. Lots of public outrage by that, outraging public decency. So, And they were convicted. The artist and the curator were both convicted and fined £600. Wow. So that's how it can be broadly interpreted. So that was 1990. Another example from 1962, very, very famous case that went all the way up to the House of Lords is the highest court, DPP against Shaw. And Shaw was a bit of an entrepreneur and he saw a gap in the market for men that needed to find contact details of prostitutes rather than going out on the street. If you could buy a gazetteer that had got a list of names in, and you knew where they lived. Yeah, great. Yeah. So he actually went to the Metropolitan Police and said to them, if I put a book together with all these names in, would I be breaking the law? To which the Met said, uh, no, there's no law that we know of that would cover that particular you know, situation. So he went ahead, did his book. Then, of course, a lot of uh, moral campaigners were upset by that. Yes. Put pressure on the Attorney General. You know, we can't have this. You need to do something. What do we charge him with? Hmm. Corrupting public decency, outraging public decency. This old offence would, you know, kind of cover that situation. So the case goes to the House of Lords and, yeah, <laughs> he ends up being convicted. And that creates another precedent. It's kind of a bonkers law because, like, to outrage public decency, you have to check whether or not the public is outraged. And it's just it's a mental image of just people being stood around this guy swimming and going, are you outraged? Are you outraged? How outraged are we all? And then, like, if one person's outraged, is that enough to secure? No. It doesn't need to be outraged. So that's a really good question. So this is why the offence is used so for so many different circumstances. For two reasons. If we go back to indecent exposure again in a minute, you've got to show that there's some intent, there's some, you know, bad motive to want to harm or upset somebody. Mm. And that's got to be proved, which is sometimes quite difficult. For outraging public decency, there's no intent. Just the fact you commit the offence, you haven't got to show that you intended necessarily to harm anybody. Right. And also you haven't got to show that the public were in fact outraged, just that two people were present who may have been outraged if they'd have seen it. Oh. So it's, it's quite vague. <laughs> that is very vague. That's, I mean, you might have two people that go, no, I'm, I'm all right with this, but that's... But you've got to judge it on the basis of what Lord Denning used to call the man on the Clapham omnibus. So the man on the Clapham omnibus is Mr. or Miss, well, it was Mr. because it was 1960s when Denning said the 70s. But the reasonable man, what would the reason, and it was always the reasonable man, never the reasonable woman. What would the reasonable man think was appropriate behaviour? And this is imaginary, hypothetical. So if you put the reasonable man in the room, would he think that, you know, creating this ladies directory or having sex in a Domino's <laughs> pizza shop, would he think that that was, you know, outraging public decency? Wow. And of course, the answer to that would be yes. But the more controversial thing is less the fact that he was convicted of the outraging public decency, but the fact that when he put his book together, there was no law that he had broken. No. And so he's convicted of being retrospectively 
which nowadays you couldn't do because that would violate the European Convention of Human Rights, Article 7. But at the time, he's being convicted of something that wasn't illegal at the time he did it, and that goes against the rule of law. Mm. But the House of Lords agreed that the offence should stand. Raging hypocrites as well. I researched the history of sex work, and I'll guarantee that all of those MPs in there going, yeah, I'm definitely outraged, definitely outraged, will have used those particular services before. (laughs) I'll be back with Kim after this short break. Hi there, I'm Don Wildman, the host of the brand new podcast, American History Hit. Join me twice a week as I explore the past to help us understand the United States today. You'll hear how code breakers uncovered secret Japanese plans for the Battle of Midway. Visit Chief Poetin as he prepares for war with the British. See Walt Disney accuse his former colleagues of being communists and uncover the hidden history that lies beneath Central Park. From pre-colonial America to independence, Slavery to civil rights, the gold rush to the space race. I'll be speaking to leading experts to delve into America's past. New episodes dropping every Monday and Thursday. So join me on American History Hit, a podcast by History Hit. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm thrilled to say that today's episode of Betwixt the Sheets is brought to you by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stresses with us, and I'm no exception. It can be a whole range of things that weigh on us big and small, such as, can I justify these elaborate impulse purchases? How do I tell my friend that, no, they really shouldn't have cut that fringe? And of course, the evergreen classic, why are we all here? Bottling these things up can really take its toll, which is why therapy is fantastic for getting them off your chest and working through them with an expert, even if it's just to tell your mate that their hair doesn't look its best. If you're thinking of starting therapy, BetterHelp is built to be convenient to you, being entirely online and flexible to suit your schedule. Simply fill out a questionnaire to be matched with a therapist and you can change at any time with no additional cost. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash betwixt to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash betwixt. But let's talk about indecent exposure because this is fascinating because like it, it's a really sad situation, but most people I know have been flashed. I've certainly been flashed. Me when I was 17, 18, yeah. 
And it's for a long time, it was kind of almost. I suppose people like almost looked at it as if it was funny that it wasn't serious, and it always is. Is it's a really unpleasant, nasty thing to do. When did laws come in particularly around that, and how? So you would have to prove that you intended to upset someone to prosecute that. Yes, and therein lies the problem. So the first reference to indecent exposure is in 1824. So this was the Vagrancy Act. So there's a number of pieces of legislation in the Victorian area where they put together different kinds of conduct or behaviour into one statute, you know, to make sure that people behaved properly. And in 1824, Section 4 of the Vagrancy Act made it a defence to willfully, openly, lewdly, obscenely expose the person with intent to insult a female. Or specifically a female. Yeah, so it's only male against woman. The person is literally the penis. And to prove that it was willfully, openly, lewdly, they would require evidence that his penis was erect at the time, because otherwise he would could say that he was just, you know, having a pee or taking a leak. So when I was young, <laughs> 16, 17, 18, and it was a typical kind of stereotype. Well you, well, you always thought of the stereotype, didn't you? The man with the brown mac. Yes. And I was flash ones. I wouldn't have known what I saw in those days. I mean, it's a different generation, you know, and to describe where, I mean, I think now women, girls are a lot more informed about parts of the body than, than my generation was. Yeah. And so, yeah, you didn't really know quite what had happened and so I think that's part of it as well that sort of you were saying the little bit of kind of humor almost to it it was a way of Mm. dealing with it wasn't it and it kind of happened to everybody so so that was one problem that it was really hard to prove because it often happens so quickly you know that you don't actually see or you know you'd be too embarrassed to say whether it was erect or not and how do you prove that like how do you describe that how do you prove that he was erect when he could have just been innocently stood there on the street with his penis out as you do in a flaccid state (laughs) that's i don't know how you prove that i think it was really hard to explain it today even today we still feel a little bit embarrassed because we haven't got the language have we to describe parts of the body in a way that we all feel comfortable with because you either fall back relying on medical terms you know penis vagina which again you know despite like Davina's best efforts and everybody else's it still feels so what happened in the 19th century and that's another thing that we didn't mention when we were talking about the women in court they didn't have the language to actually explain what had happened to them because in the 1820s, language was censored, sexual language. So the dictionary was Baudelarized. His name was Baudelaire and he took out lots of these. I think I read somewhere there were sort of like 900 words for penis and 200, 300 for, you know, vagina. But these were all taken out of the lexicon in the Victorian period. And if you're the victim... Again, you're in a rock and a hard place because you can't talk in any kind of sexualized language because that would show you up as being a bad girl because you knew, you know, about sex and you weren't supposed to. So how yeah. do you describe without any words? So when you look at the reports, they all use this really vague wording like um, he affected his purpose or he took indecent liberties. She was distressed. She fainted which is quite hard, obviously, to interpret from a 20, 21st century perspective to try and work out what actually happened. Yeah. So you've got to make some kind of assumptions, really, on what you think may have happened and piecing together the circumstances and everything else. And certainly the first time it happened to me, 
the first time I was ever flashed, I was a child and we were on a school bus and we were going on a school trip and this guy was driving in a car behind us and we were all like waving out the back window and then suddenly he just started masturbating whilst driving and I had no idea what I'd seen, to be completely honest, is it just felt weird. It was like, why is he waving with that? <laughs> and he's driving without you caring attention. I know, exactly. Like double whammy. I just, But I don't know if I could have explained that to anyone. We certainly didn't tell any adults. I think because we felt we'd done something wrong as well. And like you said, even though now we have more words, and more sensitive policing, all the rest of it, I wouldn't have known what I'd just seen. No, no Absolutely. So that was the first offence. And then there was another offence in 1847, which was a little bit easier to prove, but it still wanted willful intent. So that's why perhaps very few cases of indecent exposure. In fact, Dave Cox, my colleague up at Wolverhampton, did some research on the judicial statistics. And between 1857 and 1930, there was only an average of 23 cases of indecent exposure reported. And this is England and Wales during that period. And because there were so few in 1930, they stopped recording them as a separate category. So then it's hard to pick them out of a more general classification of sort of minus sexual offences, if you like. And I think that's mainly because it was so difficult to prove and because people, women, didn't go and report it because, you know, of the things we've just been saying. So in 2003, they updated it, but it's still the same problem that you've got to show that he intended to cause some harm. And whenever you use that word, there's got to be some intent. He only needs to turn around and say, well, I I, I was just desperate, you know, just leave yourself a peek. Which comes back to the indecency thing. Yeah. So now you can see why the outraging public decency offence is an easy one to use because it doesn't require having to show that willfulness. Yes, I can. And I was gobsmacked looking at this yesterday. <laughs> thought I'd do a little bit of searching around on the web. And to find that Thames Valley in 2021 recorded 300 offences of outraging public decency. So I'm thinking, what is what what is going on in Thames Valley? What is going on there? <laughs> and I've not heard it, you know, in other forces. And obviously it'd be interesting to try and see if other forces have used this. And there was one report, and obviously it's when they were dealing with some of these at probably Reading Magistrates or one of the courts in Berkshire. And there were five cases listed. And one was a man masturbating in his car. Perennial (laughs) favourite. One was another man masturbating on a train. A couple were dogging on a memorial in a recreation ground. Uh, and a woman was dancing naked outside Reading Police Station. Ah, see, I kind of respect that one. So you can see the broadness of sort of situations that this one common law offence that isn't written down in statute that has only ever been kind of confirmed by the judiciary can be useful. I can see that now, actually, because that's you sort of need a law where it's just like, look, I don't care whether or not you intended to do it. You can't get your knob out like in public. You just can't (laughs) do it. I can definitely see the benefits of that. Can I ask as somebody that's researched this for like your career is, Do you have any sense of what the motivation is behind these offences? Because I've always, like, what's the payoff from somebody that flashes and exposes and sends dick pics that nobody's asked for? Like, what what is going on there psychologically? It's a really good question. And and even the, the psychiatrists haven't bottomed or psychologists that one. Some flashes are potential child abusers because they'll start doing something like that, knowing that it's unlikely they'll get caught and they're kind of, 
testing themselves out if that makes sense right yeah uh, it's yes. a bit like sort of you know the, the child porn you know watching child porn and then going on and committing you know offenses with, with children so there's that side of it but they're not all potential child abusers really I've no idea I mean it's like rape you start off when you study rape trying to understand why mm. you try and understand child abusers you know we can put man on the moon, but we haven't yet worked out why men commit such horrendous, perverse acts. No, I mean, when did it become a crime for women to commit indecent exposure? Yeah, when was that brought into law? When was it recognised that women can do this too? So that would be 2003. What, 2003? Yeah, but they could always have been prosecuted under the outraging public decency, so that's what you would yes. have done before. Uh, I think there's a case, might have been in Plymouth actually, because we had a chief constable here who was very much into policing quite strongly before it was ever really heard of and I think there was some women on the hoe and they were exposing their breasts so that offence could be used for that so but breasts now wouldn't be caught because the new offence in 2003 only says genitalia in the wording right so if you exposed your breasts and somebody didn't like that the only possible would be outraging public decency which at the moment I don't think that would probably have much mileage no. but there might be in the future you know because that's the other thing isn't it society always changes it kind of goes quite permissive and then it'll come back and be more restrictive uh, and I don't know where we are at the moment it's just that there seems to be lots of people wanting to have uh, sex in public so we've got one at Plymouth this week at court who were having oral sex just down the road from me 200 meters in the shopping area just behave oh my god <laughs> we mentioned the pizza one but probably the most controversial so Hyde Park, a BBC Two music festival in Hyde Park for families. This was 2015, so a music festival. And there's a couple there, and it's described in court as having a particularly revolting sex act. They were having oral sex while they're watching this BBC Two concert. They were both in their late 40s. They refused to accept a caution, and they also refused to have the case heard in the magistrates. They thought it was OK what they were doing. And it went to the Old Bailey. And the judge said um, they both needed to be taught a lesson and he fined them a thousand pounds each. Imagine being that. It's, it's all right. So you've had a bit to drink. You're, you're watching your BBC concert. You've got carried away. Oh, dear. We've we've done something. But then to absolutely stick to your guns and be like, no, I should be allowed to give somebody a blowjob whilst watching a BBC concert. That's, that's a level of commitment I can't quite relate to. I mean, what's the law around like? I suppose there's flashing with intent, like it's definitely a sexual offence because presumably what they're kind of getting off on is the fact that somebody's not consenting and they're getting off on that. What about like the people that run naked across football matches or cricket pitches from time to time? What's their legal streaking? Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, that could be outraging public decency if they wanted to charge them with that. But So you've got to put yourself in the situation again. The reasonable person, which would be the reasonable football fan... <laughs> 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 would the reasonable football fan cricket fan be outraged because you've got to kind of that would be the test but yeah potentially outraging public decency but what they normally would charge them with is a public order offense right and today now there's probably provisions within the football grounds that the stewards have powers obviously to come and the football ground would probably deal with it rather than the police as in the past yeah, okay, yeah. So nobody do that if you're thinking about listening to it. That one still 
<laughs> no, don't do it. Even though you might not outrage football fans. But the laws are changing around this. I, because of the nature of what I research and that, that I sort of post a lot of it on social media, I get sent a lot of peculiar things. I get just an absolute tsunami of dick pics until I turned off all ways for people to be able to contact me. And I've been endlessly fascinated by what's the psychology behind this? Like, what is their success ratio of, you know, does anyone ever get back to them and go, oh, hello, thank you for sending me a picture of your penis. That's very kind of you. Thank you for taking the time. But I did get sent like some really, really weird stuff. And I was kind of sat with it going, I don't know what laws there are about this. And I did report it to the police. And I'm not going to go into it too much because, you know, things are pending, but they did take it seriously. They did find the person and charges have been brought. And that feels quite new to me. Is that like cyber flashing? It's not new in the sense of sending... It's the equivalent of sending material through the post. And so in the early 1900s, part of the indecency agenda, one of the indecency offences was sending inappropriate or obscene or indecent, and then you've got to define indecent material through the post under the Telecommunications Act. So this is the modern equivalent. So obviously the internet now is the equivalent of the post in the past. So that would be, you know, one charge that they could bring because that's, I think, Telecommunications Act 1984. There's certainly modern legislation that would cover sending that kind of obscene material through. But again, you would need a witness, a victim, yourself, and identify where it came from. I mean, it could come through. It could be under the pornography legislation, couldn't it? I mean, at least I don't have to struggle with proving whether or not he was erect at the time. There's no saying, I just sent these no, because I needed... It's, like, it's right there, all the evidence of exactly what this person was doing. And talk to me a little bit about the offence of what's called upskirting, because that was brought in within a few years. And I guess this is an example of when the law changes because people didn't conceive that somebody could do something and then we, oh, yes, they have. But that's changed, hasn't it? Absolutely, yes. So it was a case in 2007 and he's a barrister of all people. Dear. (laughs) Yeah. So, and he carries around with him his secret camera and he's recording, you know, video uh, looking up uh, girls and women's skirts. The police do a raid. I'm not quite sure why or how, whether that was probably maybe related to perhaps some child investigation that was going on more generally. And when they do the raid, they find 20 hours of recorded video, including one with uh, was it a 14-year-old girl, I think. And again, they're in a rock and a hard place. What, what, what do we charge him with? Because the sexual offences provisions, but David Blunkett's legislation had been so carefully thought through to try and cover every conceivable eventuality but there was nothing in there because there'd been no assault he hadn't touched no. her they couldn't do him under voyeurism because of the way that the legislation for voyeurism was written because the women were unaware so you didn't really have a victim if you know what I mean yes they didn't know he was looking up their skirts because it was a secret camera so there were all kind of problems with the offences which had been really carefully drafted so the fallback provision again was to use outraging public decency which is what they did and he was convicted and the conviction was upheld and then there was a proposal in parliament to bring in a change to the law to amend the sexual offences act so that now it is covered by legislation rather than using the common law offence but yeah it's a prime example of not knowing you know what might happen next kind of thing and it's a really interesting one from a legal perspective isn't it like what crime has been committed and it's oh dear now i understand that you before becoming a professor and a historian you were a police officer 
Yes, Nottingham. That was my first job. Presumably then you must have encountered a lot of sort of indecent exposure cases. And how have you seen the shift in your career? Like what's changed between when you started and now when it comes to indecent exposure? Not the act itself, that's remained pretty constant, but how it's reported and treated. Yeah, we used to get quite a few reports. And if we could find out who it was, they'd usually just get cautioned. It wasn't something that you would necessarily prosecute at court unless they'd got previous records of it. So it was kind of downgraded, I guess, in that sense. And that was kind of part of that era as well, where oh, I can remember cases with young girls being abused and they were blamed, you know. There wasn't the understanding that there might be a reason why they had, and I'll, I'll use the word agreed rather than consent, you know, they hadn't consented. So that side was very, very different. So the good news is I think things have changed and there's much better awareness, there's much better, under, especially with children, than there was certainly in the 70s and the 80s. Yeah. With indecent exposure, I'm kind of almost surprised it's come up again, you know. It sort of seemed to... Well, I think it's not so much the indecent exposure. It's this thing with the Thames Valley Police that surprised me more than anything. The sheer number of cases. And then going back to your point, you said about what do you think it is with them sending all these pictures? But then the kids are doing that. I mean, I mean, they're sending naked photographs of themselves, aren't they? And that's been normalised. I mean, we need to have some kind of education around this. Because I think the genie's out of the bottle now is that people... I don't think you can put this stuff back in. You can't undo the technology, can you? And we are starting to shift the blame culture to if you've sent someone a picture of yourself nude and they show it to everybody, that's not actually your fault. That's them being horrible. But it's a slow process, isn't it? And I don't think that people, when they're very young, when they're teenagers and they kind of get all excited about it, fully grasp that if you send it, it's there then. It's there, isn't it? And it's, you know, never send somebody something that you wouldn't be happy with being put on the internet. Absolutely. And a lot of it is sometimes mistaken sending, isn't it? You think you sent it to one yes. person, but it's ended up going to others because you pressed the wrong button or you were doing it quickly, so you didn't check who you were sending it to, yeah. Or you trusted the person. I mean, I've sent nudes to people before, and then I look back and I just think, really, Kate? Like, that could just pop up on... You know, like, an enormous amount of trust that you put in someone to just, you know, go, here's a picture of my boobs. Please don't show that to anybody else. Is that a crime now? They call it revenge porn, don't they? Is that sharing without people's consent? Yes, yeah, so, so that would be an offence, definitely, if you pass that on. But... Um, the police aren't going to be able to deal with thousands of teenage boys. That's the other thing, isn't it? Is where are the resources? And it's probably not something that they would see, really. They obviously accept that if the law's broken, it's their responsibility to deal with that. But it's too big a problem, if you know what I mean, for them to deal with on their own. It needs parents. Yeah. Well, I had an interview this week with a head of a school and one of her former pupils is now in her 20s. But this had happened to her when she was at school. She'd sent a nude to who she thought was the boyfriend and it had ended up going all around school. And the head teacher was just saying that they're almost at their wits end because they've done everything they can think of to try and talk, educate, blah, blah, blah. But... It's still happening. Do you think we're almost in the 1820s again, that we're in a period, almost at a tipping point, where things have perhaps become too immoral, inverted commas, and that there might soon start to be almost, I don't know, you know, the moral campaigners and a backlash against that? I, I don't know, but it can't be right that people are just going and having sex in music con And that's without the music festivals that the youngsters are going to. I mean, well, I'm older people, I mean, 
must be happening them and they'd be less offended but um yeah there's something not quite right <laughs> i think that the internet and mobile phones have had a profound shift on how we regard public and private acts because like you're effectively carrying something around in your pocket that can show you the most intimate acts but then if you show it to somebody else then it's it's created this kind of strange I don't know how you get teenagers to stop sending pictures of their bodies to each other. It's such a difficult... I suppose because then if they want to, I suppose, then that's one issue, isn't it? But it's then what happens when that gets out is trying to show, educate people about the consequences of this can be quite spectacular. And it's not just the sharing of the indecent photos. It's then the boys are going on and reading the porn, aren't they? They're all seeing yes. the porn online. And then when they're meeting girls, you know, trying to form relationships... Their, their expectations aren't what, you know, there's a real mismatch between what they're expecting girls to do and what, you know, is acceptable behaviour. And again, we're in the realms of immorality there again, aren't we? We are. And it, kids are learning about sex from porn. And that's quite a dangerous precedent because porn isn't real sex. They're not, the people in that film aren't actually having sex like that. If you panned back, you'd see the guy stood there with a sound boom and a sandwich. And you don't like none of it is real. And that's quite terrifying, I think. But again, what can the law do? It's a very interesting idea, isn't it? Outraging public decency. Hmm. Kim, you have been amazing to talk to. I have loved talking to you about this. Thank you so much. It's been great fun, thank you. Yes, yeah, lovely. If people want to know more about you and more about your work and not send you obscene pictures or flash <laughs> at you in the street, they just want to just send you nice things or talk to you, where can they find you? At Plymouth University. So if they just put my name in and Plymouth University, the email address will come up, so... Thank you so much for talking to me today. I've thoroughly enjoyed myself. And some great questions. So thank you very much. It's been been good. Really good. Enjoyed it. Thank you for listening. And thank you so much to Kim and Elizabeth for sharing your time and your knowledge and your expertise. And if you found this episode interesting, please don't forget to like, review and subscribe wherever it is that you get your podcasts. Join me again, Betwixt the Sheets, the history of sex scandal and society, a podcast by History Hit. This podcast includes music by Epidemic Sounds. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Thank you for listening to this episode of Betwixt the Sheets. Please follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. 
Don't forget, you can also listen to all these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com forward slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use the code BETWIXT at checkout.